You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode number 159 of the Make It British podcast. Today I'm chatting to Rachel Bowditch of footwear insole brand Alice Bow. Rachel saw a gap in the market for providing comfortable insoles for women, which became an overnight sensation when it was reported in an American magazine that the Duchess of Cambridge was a big fan. Rachel's going to talk to us about how she rapidly grew her business overnight by bringing her manufacturing in-house. She's also got some great tips about how to protect your brand's IP and register for a trademark. She also explains really simply how to export to the EU if you're making a product in the UK and what the new rules of origin are, depending on where you're sourcing your raw materials from. And she tells us about the new EU VAT changes that are coming in and how you can make sure as a business that makes in the UK that you're all sorted and you know what you're doing when it comes to your EU VAT. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Rachel. Here you go. Rachel, thank you very much for joining me on the Make It British podcast. Pleasure, Kate. Great to talk. So tell me, um, fill me in with Alice Bow. That's your that's your business. For those that don't know, how did it get started um, and what is it that you make? Yep, no, definitely. So Alice Bow started one of those classic sort of problem-solving exercises where I was trying to replace a much-loved pair of shoes and everything I could find was either gorgeous but uncomfortable or, or comfortable but, let's be honest, not very gorgeous. Uh, and so I asked a, a well-known brand, who I won't name, but I asked a well-known brand when I was trying on their shoes, a British brand, um, I said, oh, do you have anything to make them more comfortable? And they gave me this really generic insole. And I was spending, you know, a couple hundred quid on this pair of shoes, but the best they could offer me was something that made the inside of the shoes look ugly. And so that started my brain going, out, why is this situation, you know, there's something not quite right here, you know, that they can't get the comfort into the shoes. There was no padding at all at the front of them. And that's how Alice Bow started. So I went in there, nerded out and did shoemaking at Cordway in his intensive study. Went to Linear Palais, oh. got to know all, yeah, went into depth in the industry going, why is this the case? And then figured out how lots of shoes have got what we call sort of point of sale padding. You know, those things that make you, oh, this feels lovely, I'll buy it, but then collapses after about 10 wears. Yes, yeah. exactly. We've all we've all bought those shoes, yeah. definitely. Or you buy the insoles and they're too chunky and so they don't fit in your shoes. Hmm. So that started me and initially I wanted to set up a shoe range and I was thinking, well, I've got wider feet, there's like a wider, you know, shoes for wider feet in the UK, maybe I'll set up a shoe range. And then I learnt more and more about it and to set up a shoe range is mega expensive. You know, it's 100K plus if you're yeah. going to do it properly and then the other thing I found out when I was researching was that even if I did get it off the ground and even if I did have this, this really great concept of having shoes in multiple widths, most shops in the UK wouldn't stock them because they say they don't have the room to stock them. So where there's brands like Ferragamo who in other countries stock multiple widths, they don't in the UK. No, Because the don't. retailers say, we don't have space for it. 
Yeah, I remember that even when I was at Marks and Spencers when, yeah, they have a huge footwear department. Um, they still can't stock everything in a wide fit and more and more people have wide feet, don't they? Exactly, exactly. So that then made me go, okay, well, what can I do? And that's when I turned to insoles because I thought, right, something that's easier to do from a production perspective that fills a need because we all need a bit of comfort in our shoes, particularly if we're in high heels. And there was a unique differentiator because no one was doing ones that actually made your shoes look better. They were all making your shoes look worse. Yeah. So is your background, you say you tra- you trained at Cordwainers. For those people that don't know, it's a, it, it was a very well-known um, footwear course, wasn't it, in London? Yeah. Was that where you started or did you have a background doing something different before that? I'm a management consultant by background, but I've always had this aspect of both sides. So when I was at school, I did work experience with a barrister and a milliner, a hat maker. And so I've always had these two sides to me. So for the first part of my career, it was always about sort of the business side. It was working with the likes of Deloitte or in the city and just really enjoying sort of that aspect of my brain. And then when I came across this problem, it's like, okay, right. This other aspect of my brain just woke up again and went, come on, we have to be able to do something about this. So yeah. that, that's that's my background. So I think when I was setting up LSBO, you know, I didn't know where it was going to go, but I knew that I was going to research and set up properly, partly because of my business background. So that I think at the start, you make a decision whether you're going to have a hobby or a business. And some people end up treating a business like a hobby because they're nervous to make a commitment to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that ends up doing two things for you. One, mentally for yourself, that means that you're always keeping your foot out. You're always going, oh, well, you know, it might not work. And you, you talk about it a bit more shyly with your friends and stuff like that. You, you're not really committing to it. Um, and the other thing is when you actually go out there to talk to potential suppliers or manufacturers is that they don't see you being as serious. Yeah, if you're that, not, yeah, so true. Yeah, yeah. If you're not, because they they meet people every day, and, and and when you're in your own little bubble, you forget that you know me coming on with Alice Bow going, I want to make some insoles. It's just one of you know tens of people they've had approached them that week, wanting to work with them, and how do they choose who to place their bet on? Because mm, they yeah, need to exactly. invest time at the start. Yeah, so who do they place their bet on? And if you come along and you're like, right set up as a limited company I'm that registered I'm good to go I'm you know I'm serious about this then they're more likely to go with you as opposed to someone who's like a bit oh okay no I'm gonna do that when I'm you know when I'm further along when I'm you know um, yeah I talked about this on on a previous episode of the podcast exactly exactly that it's showing especially at the moment when manufacturers in the UK are so much in demand so how did you first go about finding manufacturers for your insole idea? And yeah. what year was this? This was back, so so it was around 2012 when I was properly researching in the, the initial stages. To, to start with, it was quite a simple product. And, and I literally went around and I did a template of the insole. And for those on the podcast, I'm talking with my hands at the moment, which <laughs> It's a natural thing. But I did the shape of the insoles. And then I literally went round Liberty and Selfridges and put the shape in all the shoes on the women's shoe floor in the different brands. I bet they loved really you in fit. there. I know. I was just like, I'm doing a research project. <laughs> doing a research project. 
<laughs> also just looking at me like slightly nuttery. Um, <laughs> so that's how I did to get the fit right because I was conscious that it was going to have to fit in shoes that are out there on the market. So when it came to manufacturers, the first thing I did is I looked at materials and components. So I looked at what was available in the UK and as a country, we're not known for leather for the women's shoemaking industry. Hmm. We're known for leather for other products, for, you know, car upholstery, for bags, for men's shoes, but not women's shoes. So I went to Linea Pelle, which is the big trade fair over in Italy for all, basically everything behind the scenes, all the components for, for footwear or leather. So, so there's leather, there's a padding. Heels. I've been to that show many times back when I did leather goods at, at M&S and Burberry. It's huge, isn't it's it? I mean, when you say it's a, it's a show for all the components. I mean, there's 2,000 exhibitors, I would take a guess at, maybe maybe a lot more. Oh, it's it's huge. There, there are halls and halls of exhibitors. So you, you do need to go um, allow yourself good time. Any, any of those type of trade fairs allow good time. I think what I end up starting to do is you go on day one and you do the recce. You do the laps of the halls. You, you don't expect to stop for in-depth conversation unless something really appeals to you. But you've, you've got your map of it all and you mark out on your map which ones you want to go back to. And then you go sit down, put your legs up for the night, go back the <laughs> yeah. next day, refreshed, first thing in the morning, or maybe you've you know made initial contact the day before and then you sit down and have your chat. So that's how I said I sourced all the components there. And then through the people we were using for the padding, they were Spanish-based, and so they introduced us to a manufacturer there to start In Spain. With. In Spain. Yeah. So started there, and that, that, that was, you know, completely fine. They're actually orthotic makers, not shoemakers. Mm-hmm. So I thought for longer term, if we're going down that sort of really heavy orthotic route, and when I say we, it's still just me at this stage, but you yeah. sort of talk in the plural. Um, so you, I was looking at that, and, and that was fine, and then – it took a while to get going and I decided 2015 was the year I'd done sort of some, some little trade fairs, you know, market stalls, pop-ups, all the rest of it. I said, like, right, okay, 2015, I'm going to hire a PR firm. We're going to actually do this and push it out into the market because whenever anyone came into contact with the product, it looks gorgeous because it's colourful leather. The padding's fantastic. It does just what you need. Exactly. And in person, I could sell really well but I need to get the message out there. Hmm. And I'm strong on business, but when it comes to sales and marketing and putting my hand up, especially for something when it's your own product, a bit of yeah. me went, oh, <laughs> you know, like, oh. Um, so I thought, no, I need to get someone external to, to do this. So I was gearing up for that in later 2015. And then literally in June 2015, I woke up one morning and where my iPad would just have a few orders on the screen in the morning from our Shopify yeah. store. There were pages and pages of orders. Of orders? What, overnight? Orders overnight? Overnight. From taking on this new salesperson? No, I hadn't taken them on yet. That (laughs) wasn't that, you know, I I was still thinking, okay, for Christmas 2015, they've been pressed in the US overnight to say the Duchess of Cambridge was a fan of the brand. Oh, wow. Yeah. You were still making them in Spain? We'd done some in Spain and I had those products there, but then I, because it was going slower than I thought at that stage, I thought, I'll start making them sort of you know in-house effectively right so they're made just tracking back a little bit so people can understand what these yeah. soles look like so they are they're leather leather but 
With special padding? With special padding. So really so simple you'd... construction technique, leather and padding, yeah. So would you buy a shoe size, uh, one size up to fit the sole into so that you've got the room for the sole in there? Well, you don't actually mm. need to. And this uh-huh. this is the thing for me because most of the insoles out there were chunky, so you need to buy bigger shoes. So the aim with these was to put the padding where you really needed them without taking too much space up in your shoes because you don't want to cause other issues around ill-fitting shoes yeah. just by putting some padding in. Amazing. So, so two sorts, you, yeah. And did you know the Duchess of Cambridge had already bought a pair? No. So where were you selling them at the moment, at that point, just on your own website? We And in Marlebone and various pop-ups about oh, so you the place. Had, right. And various ways. So, so we'd had sort of little dribs and drabs across retail, but this literally came out of the blue. Uh, and yeah, so, so literally woke up to screens of orders and then I was like, from okay, the US, from the US. And then it went global. So one of those, you hear about things going global overnight. This was one of those where it did actually go global overnight. And I go, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? so, how, so how had she discovered, cause obviously other brands listening to this are going to want to think, well, why am I not an overnight sensation? So how did the Duchess of Cambridge find your product just stumbled across it in a store in a pop-up store do you think i don't actually know and how did the press know that she was a fan i don't actually know (laughs) so it literally just happens wow yeah and i've heard another couple of people this type of things happen to where where you, you can't you know the press might say something but mentally you can't actually trace fully back but somehow you know it was solving a need that was out there yeah. um, and, and one of the brands of shoes that she's been linked with sometimes let's let's say um don't necessarily have padding in uh so i we know the sorts of designer shoes yes <laughs> yes um <laughs> so i don't all i know is that it happened completely out of the blue um I was amazing due, yeah i was due to go but on holiday the next week <laughs> have you got enough stock at this point when this happened no Right, and your manufacturer is in Spain. Manufacturer was in Spain, and all your components are coming from Spain. Is the tannery in Italy? Italy, in Italy. Italy. right? So, so basically, what before then, because it slowed down, I was like, okay, right, I'm going to do this sort of myself. I can, I can make these. These are quite simple. I can make these. I have a studio space in East London, and then with this happening, I was like, okay. All guns blazing, we need to pull this in. Uh, so a friend basically said, look, keep the orders running, just put a lead time on it. Yeah, make, so manage people's expectations. Exactly. So we end up with a six to eight week lead time on it. Amazing. So you basically had a two-month waiting list. Exactly. But people were prepared to wait because the Duchess exactly. was wearing them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so that's the thing. So so if you do get demand, there's various things you can do to set yourself up so that you have a fighting chance of dealing with it. Yeah, one is do a wait list. And wait lists have become more common now as people, yeah, want to support smaller manufacturers, want to support smaller brands uh, from a sustainability aspect of not dead stock sitting on a shelf. So wait list. The other thing too is because I properly set up at the start and I worked with very serious supply chain people was that when this happened, I could turn around to them and go, okay, right, this has happened. What can we do? What can we get in? And so, for example, the tanneries in Italy were like, well, gold, let's see what we've got on the shelves available for you. It might not be exactly the same colour. Let's see what we've got available for you. We'll set express samples. They'll get there tomorrow. 
see. Working with some shoemakers in East London that had started cutting the leather for me, they were like, no, no problem, just, you know, ramp up. <laughs> we'll, we'll do it. Brilliant. Just let us know what's happening. If we need to pop in on the weekends. So this develop relationships, you know, invest in your supply chain. Mm. Uh, don't just think of them as people who ship you some product. They're much more than that. They're so fundamental to your business that you need to develop the relationships with them. So because of that, we stood a fighting chance. And being in a studio, I put up a sign to say, look, I need some help. And within a couple of weeks, there was 10 people. I was still doing a full-time management consultancy gig at the time. Let's put that <laughs> into context too. So for the first few weeks, I was rocking up to do the consulting still going, I don't know if this is going to last. Um, you know, then going home and answering customer emails till 3 a.m. then sleeping for four hours and then going back Gosh. the next day. Just Because you don't know. You, you know, something out of the blue like that, you, you just don't know. Um, and then we got more press in July and then we had all of August, you know, with Europe going on their holidays. So you're like, oh, supply chain, you know. That's- yeah, all the tanneries in Italy shut all of August. So they, Ex- yeah. Exactly. So so the, the big pause happens. Um, but no, at that stage I went, okay, right, this this is ongoing. So I, so I fessed up to the, um, the company I was working with at the time, which was a big global marketing company, and just said, oh, this has kind of happened. I uh, need, need to shimmy out the exit door a little bit and, you know, go on Amazing, on for Amazing, though, while, that so. you had that growth like that just yeah. because one royal influencer oh, stumbled across your product. But that, I suppose also it meant that you had a great product, that people, you found a gap in the market, you, you know, you knew it was something that people would want, yeah. You developed it properly yeah. with researching the right components. Yeah. So you, you were set up at that stage anyway to have a great product, which is what a lot of it boils down to, and a good supply chain. Exactly. And and the thing about having good supply chains is it doesn't have to cost you a lot of money. And this is where I think we often get ourselves bogged down at the start. We're thinking it's going to be really expensive to set up properly. It doesn't have to be. There's oftentimes you, you can actually get to market without doing that fancy moulding and bespoke stuff that, you, that you'd love to do. That, that can be day two or day three or day four. It is about actually you've got no business until you've actually gotten to market. Exactly. So test, get out there, test. So what sort of quantities were you ordering from the Spanish Spanish factory and what sort of quantities could you then make in your own studio? So, so ordering from Spain to start, we're just ordering like a few hundred pairs at a time. Right. Yep. So that, they, were, they were lovely and flexible and, you know, could, could see potential because of where they were in the market themselves. In the UK, once once we got a team of 10 people together, admittedly mostly part-time, and then then the, the manufacturers helping out as well, they're mostly just cutting the leather, but they, they would help with insole manufacture too when needed. Uh, but, but we could ramp up very quickly and we're making hundreds of pairs a day uh we we made ten thousand pairs relatively quickly oh wow from your own studio yeah yeah amazing so is everything now made in london in your own studio yes so made in london we have our leather cut by the lovely bob who's in his 70s who's been clicking which is cutting leather since he was a teenager um, he's one that won the last of the old school clickers in London. Uh, so, yeah, so Bob clicks our leather and then we do all the production in studio, which means that for part of it, we can still do a bit just in time. So we can decide exactly what padding, whether it's for high heels or flat shoes at the time we, we make. If there's a surge 
you know, in flat shoes, which there's been more of in yeah. recent times. We just go to that. If people want bespoking or personalization, we've got all the leather cut and ready to go for that. Um, so it just gives us really good flexibility and it allows everything to be sort of quite, quite close and easy. Um, and I think for, for young brands, particularly when, you, when you're looking to start scaling, oftentimes people go, oh, we'll go overseas, it's cheaper. Uh, and it's, yeah, and especially with things like Brexit happening, uh, where in the past people go, oh, okay, right, that's, you know, Spain's a lot cheaper, for example. Well, when you add everything in now, that might not be the case anymore. Yeah, exactly. So you don't make anything in Spain now. No, 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 we make in the UK, use Italian, Spanish leather, padding comes from Spain. Uh, for our insoles, because they're made in the, the UK from materials from the EU, we fall within the Brexit trade agreement. And this is what's caught lots of yes. people out. So yeah. do you want to explain that to to everyone, exactly how that works? Yeah, so, so I think lots of people have gotten caught out with, with Brexit, particularly the end consumer where they go, but I'm buying from a British brand or from an EU brand. And the trade agreement that we've got with the EU is basically think about it like a big fence around the UK and the EU. What it wants to do is to protect everything within the fence let everyone within the fence trade with each other nicely, okay? <laughs> so if you've got a product that is made, so like the Ellis Bowen soles, it's all EU components made in the UK. Everything happens within the fence. That means we are by and large exempt from import or between country trading duties. But if it was that we got our materials from outside of the EU and UK, maybe we've got leather from Morocco, padding from China, but we made them in the UK, there is still a chance that we might have to pay duties on those, either us or the end consumer, when we're shipping them to someone in the EU because yeah. our components came from outside. And, and there's a rule that basically says what is the transformation that components go through when they're bought in. So the classic example given I'd say often, but, you know, in the last couple of months, is around, say, a T-shirt. So you bring a T-shirt in from somewhere outside the UK or EU, let's, let's say from China or India. You print a logo on that T-shirt. That's not enough of a change. It hasn't changed the function of the T-shirt. It's still a T-shirt. hasn't fundamentally changed the appearance. It hasn't gone from long sleeves to short sleeves. It's just got something on it. It's still a T-shirt. It's just a printed T-shirt. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so this, and for a lot of brands where they've traded on the fact that they are British or Italian or German or whatever, this has actually exposed them because now customers are going, hang on, I'm buying from a German brand or a British brand. Why have I got all these extra taxes on it? Yeah. But that was always the case, wasn't it, with the final transformation? Yeah. I think what's happened now is that they have set some rules based on what that transformation is more clearly yes. with every single product because um, it wasn't really a problem before. If you exported to the EU, it didn't really matter whether your raw materials for your for your shoes were from China or from, from the EU yeah. because you could still sell it on as without duty. But, but now you can't unless you can prove that the raw materials are from the EU. So... Have you had to do that with your insoles? Do you have to have a certain certification 
to show that you've originally purchased those materials from inside the EU? We need to, whenever we're exporting anywhere or to the EU, we need to fill out various forms to say the the origin of goods for for tax purposes and likes. Now, there's an open question about how much people are actually going to be audited on that. So, yeah, So, so this is where we've got... You know, all the records behind it to show all our supplier invoices, um, all our import documents. Is that the, the best materials. way of, sh- of showing it? Because some people don't necessarily know all the way far, that far back into their supply chain, do they? No. And this isn't so, so, so for us, we've, we've literally got a, a folder in our drive that has all the documents there. So, so if we did ever get a tax audit on it, we could just go, here's the folder. Here, are, you, you can look at the raw materials coming in. These are the manufacturer invoices for any work in the UK. This is, you know, staff invoices for making as well. Here it all is. And if you want to do analysis on quantities to make sure there's no gaps in it, then that's all there too. I think it's about not making it too complicated for yourselves. Mm. A lot of times when changes like this come in, people freak out. Uh, it's that natural sort of, ah, um, I, paperwork oh no pay, official looking paperwork yes. and really unclear guidelines from the government regulations that no one knows what to do with um and put it put it this way if anything new ever comes in like this and this won't be the last time we get something like brexit you know there will be other changes that come through we've got EUFAT changes coming through in july anytime something like this comes in everyone needs to figure it out it's not just <laughs> you it feels like just you at the time sometimes yeah but everyone needs to figure this out. And when a deal's done such last minute like Brexit was, literally a week before B-Day, um, then everyone's figuring it out. So, so the best thing you can do is keep an audit trail, keep a paper trail online, you know, or physical, of, of what you've done and just know that you're not alone. So, so mm-hmm. keep the trail and just keep an ear open, you know, Go to your advisors, whether it's your accountants or you've got someone at UKTI that helps you. Go to your advisors and just go, what should we do? But just know that everyone's figuring it out. Um, so what do you advise then? Because a lot of people are getting getting products turn away, turned away. So say they're shipping a product. They've had an order from the EU from a consumer and they send it out there in good faith using one of their usual couriers and it's come back again two months later. Yeah. Um, to be honest, some of it is just the chaos of transition. Yeah. So, so there is going to be stuff where you go, I filled out all the paperwork, we're, we're doing all the right things, but it's come back. Because just like us figuring out on this side how things work, on the other side in the EU, they're still figuring out how things work too. It's not just us. And then when you load on COVID on top of it, and the fact that the courier networks are understaffed at the moment compared to the volume of parcels going through with everyone buying online because, you know, our, our non-essential shops are shut, yeah, and we've got France and Italy going into what they refer to as the red zone again. So we've got this this all happening. It is a mess. And, and some that we just need to go, it's a mess. But <laughs> what can we do? Because there are still things we can do. The, the first thing is make sure you get all your paperwork right. Fill it out thoroughly. If in doubt, speak with Royal Mail, for example, or your career company. There's two ways essentially to send 
parcels, you can either send delivered duty paid where we pay all the duties that they started on the UK. So in theory, it just goes across to the customer, lands on their doorstep, done. They've got nothing to do there. Okay. The other way is to send it where the customer pays any duties. Yeah. Um, and because the deal was so last minute, it's only really recently that Royal Mail, for example, is actually able to handle the duties at this side. Yeah, they weren't set up at the start because right. they had no notice. You know, that everyone was guessing. Things were partly done in the background, part baked, but the, the cake wasn't fully put together yet because, <laughs> you know, they didn't know, yeah? Um, so, 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 so get your paperwork right. But the other thing too is to communicate with your customers because if you're getting a scenario where a parcel's coming back or you're getting queries from a customer going, I'm being charged and I, it, the, the, the amount seems wrong. It's 70% of the value of the product that I ordered. This seems a bit out of whack. Communicate with your customers. So if you've got an email marketing system set up for your post-purchase emails, send a shipping confirmation email and either pop extra notes into that or send a second email after it to any customers, whether country equals a country in the EU, to say, we just want to know how it's getting on. Please let us know if your parcel's arrived yet, if you've been charged any duties, you know, any information is helpful for us. Because if you do that, then you actually get to know the end customer experience and then you can build it into your selling cycle. You can build it into your order confirmation to give them the heads up that this scenario might happen. Or, you know, for us, our products are made, our insoles are made in the UK from EU materials. You should not be charged any import duties on it. If you are, please let us know. And then we'll provide you with the clarifications you need to argue back against that. Yeah, but it's just help help customers. There was there was a time when for the first few months, and it still holds a bit, some EU companies aren't shipping into the UK anymore. So for, Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. So for some yeah. EU brands, this is a huge opportunity. At the, sorry, UK brands, a huge opportunity at the moment. If if, for example, major French lingerie manufacturers aren't shipping into the UK, if you're more of a niche lingerie brand in the UK market like anything to your customers yeah, now that's what i'm hearing i mean jillian said that from tusting that i interviewed you know a few episodes ago that okay they've lost some sales to the eu because they've just you know not selling to the eu now they've picked up orders to to the uk local market as well as to america and canada so what you lose in one selling to one territory you gain locally definitely I mean have you have you noticed that an increased in demand from local customers for your products well we're waiting because our most people have spent the last year in slippers and trainers we're kind of waiting for people to get back into like you know what you might call proper shoes shoes again yeah Yeah. to to be to going out so we've, we've got other shoe accessories and other other products in the works but we're thinking that particularly for our bridal range Come May, it will be really game on. You've got sort of two years worth of weddings to happen in six months. So it is, yeah, it is going to be mental for that. And, and also there's a thing I think too around, depending what your product niche is around following the COVID curve. So some products sell better when people are in lockdown and some products sell better when people aren't in lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're not in lockdown brand, like like we are, it's a matter of following the curve. So some US states, regardless of what one might think of the politics and whether or not we agree with it, Texas, for example, is going out and partying. 
Yes, I've heard this. There's parts of the US that are just as per normal, isn't there? Yeah. So yeah. So for a brand like us, it's about when we look at the US market, it's about niching down into the areas in the US that are actually going out or, or, or even if they're not fully going out yet, have that sign of hope that it's very imminent. Hmm. Whereas then if we look at Italy and France who have just sort of gone back a step, then we need to be careful with our messaging there because if we're talking about the joy of going out or getting ready to go out, it makes us seem really culturally insensitive to what's going yeah, on there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you've got a really unique product. You said when you came up with the idea, you realised there was a gap in the market. I can imagine that there's been lots of other competitors and copycat brands that have come along, especially once you hit the big time when a certain royal influencer started wearing Alice Bow um, shoe liners. So what did what have you had any competitors, anyone copying your designs and, and how have you protected your designs? Yeah. So so from a product perspective, we've been weirdly lucky in some ways that we haven't had direct competitors come out. There has been a movement towards more comfortable shoes over the last few years, a more awareness let's say gradually of foot health, not not hugely, particularly in the UK, women's foot health is 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 not as much of a topic as it should be. We're still about sort of pretty toenails. Uh, and that's that's something we're going to be addressing more of the last, next six months or so for for LSBO. Uh, we did have a French competitor uh, and their product was lovely, but it was very thick. So also it was very well designed. Uh, people were buying them and find they couldn't actually put them to the existing pair of shoes. And so, so that that caused some some friction there with the market for them, and they subsequently stopped producing. Mm. Um, but from a, a brand perspective, so, so there's there's two things that really are your collateral. One, one is the actual product itself; the other is your brand. So, so from a product perspective, there, there's certain innate design rights you get if you can show the development of your design and effectively you copyright of your design um, and, and really you need to keep an audit trail I say that audit trail word again it's really important to keep records of what you do um, <laughs> whether it's for tax purposes or design purposes but you really need to keep a trail of your development of the design so if someone later on comes along and says no no I did it first you can go well actually back in 2012 I had this idea here mm. are my original drafts Here's the yeah. thinking behind it. Here's some emails I sent as a date stamped audit trail of it as well. So you really need, for, for design purposes, always it's very tempting to just throw out your old notes thinking it's got nothing to contribute to where you end up because it was so off the mark, those first designs. Do keep those first design notes because you don't necessarily know when you'll need them. You know, pop, the, pop them up in the loft. Don't chuck them yeah <laughs> <laughs> is having a digital copy okay having do you a, have to have a real paper copy? no having a digital copy is great what you can do is you can scan an email because then the email gives a date and time send it to someone else that you trust and that gives a date and time record and that's admissible okay. evidence yeah right so a screenshot of your design to someone else that the screenshotted that with the date on it. Yeah, so just, you know, scan in any workings that you've got, photos, you know, the actual stuff. I always say make it look like it's real. So yeah. if, if you're, you know, have a bit of your hand in it, 
you know, if you wear a distinctive ring, for example, have that in the shot. I know it sounds a bit silly, but it's just anything that proves it really is yours, you know, sign things, date things, have stuff that is your handwriting, have stuff that is your your proof, you know, whether right. it's in your Dropbox that you can see the, the audit history on documents, just just do keep keep an audit trail. So that's that's your design and you can go down the path of patent protection and further design protection. Most people don't need that, okay? Now, patents can be expensive to do and you really need to show that you are patentable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and that, by that, do you want to explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So, so basically that, that your design has got a functional feature that is so unique that you can actually protect it, that it hasn't been used in that way before. So it's either something that in that product is complete innovation or maybe it's something that's used in a different type of product and I'm thinking sort of ring pulls on a can, for example. If there was another type of product outside of cans or things made of aluminium that you could then put a ring pull on, maybe that would be so unique in its use in this new product range that you could patent that. Yeah. Yeah. So but it's expensive to do a patent or it takes a long time. Yeah, it can be expensive, can take a long time. It's it's one of those things though, the British Library, the business centre at the British Library is hugely helpful. So before you go contacting a patent lawyer where you're going to be billed per hour often at a very large rate, which I'm not saying is unjustified because a lot of them are brilliant people and brilliant at what they do, go to the British Business Library and have a chat with them first. They've got amazing intellectual property sections. They will talk you through and guide you through looking to see what is currently out there so you can do that first round of research yourself. Yeah, they are normal humans who speak normal English. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've had a few people say that actually that the the British Library is a really good place. Can you use them online as well? Do you have to go into their places? It's kind of King's Cross in London, isn't it? Yeah, it's just next to King's Cross Station, so it's great in terms of access to get to. You can contact them online. Just ring the um the phone numbers i don't know if off by heart but just look on their website and you'll find the phone numbers for the business section and they've also got on their websites some ideas of sort of what what they do so you so you will get a good flavor what's going on there they also have access to all sorts of trade publications and journals so if you are in the research stage for your product and you want to know okay in japan is there anything in japan that is like this because i know they're more innovative maybe in this market sector then right. there's a chance that the British Library might have some information and market surveys and access to all like the really expensive business journals that you don't want to pay for yourself, uh, that they have those. So they're, they're super helpful. So that's looking at your, your physical product or your design itself and some things you can do there. The other aspect is your brand name. And in the past, we used to be able to find people by mentioning physical characteristics of a store, for example. It's, it's the blue bookshop on the corner. It's the bakery with the yellow awning. It's the hairdressers <laughs> yeah. or the dentist above the shop that looks like X, Y, Z, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. That's how you'd find people. <laughs> Online, we don't have that joy of being able to go, oh, it's the blue book shop on the corner. We need to go, okay, what's the name of it? Or what's so unique about it that if I type those words into Google or Bing, it will actually bring it up for me. And mm. let's be honest, with most things, we don't know words that are unique enough without the name 
in order to surface it online. Yeah. Particularly an online only brand. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where actual brand name becomes more important than it was previously. And brand name is important, one, for people to be able to find you, but also that's often your differentiator. People want to buy a brand. They want to buy people. They want to buy into something. People don't just buy products unless you're talking about really sort of functional stuff. I, I need a desk and I don't care what the desk is like, so I'll just get anything from Ikea or wherever. People buy into the why of your brand. They buy into why you started doing this thing. You know, what what is it about it? That people like stories. And a brand yeah. is a part of the story and a brand name is a way that people can connect with your story and find your story, especially online. So when it comes to brand names, I'm very pro trademarking your brand name as early as possible. And a lot of people put it off because they go, oh, it's lawyers, it's expensive, it's legal, it's complicated. It's not. And if you're capable of running a business, most people are also capable of putting their own trademark application in. See, that's a little known fact, I would say. Mm-hmm. You've, you've actually got a course for people that can that, you, that just t- talks people through the steps, haven't you? I do, because there's lots of these aspects around business that I just see people putting off because of fear. Mm. And if you haven't done something before, if you haven't studied it, of course you're not going to know how to do it. That's, mm. You know, I didn't know anything about shoe construction properly until I went and studied it. You know, why would I? These things that I wear every day and have done since I was probably a year old, I didn't understand the inner workings of them. And it's the same with anything like trademarks or foreign currency or other business aspects, which are my sweet spot. You know, I've studied those. I know those. I'll go to someone else for my Facebook marketing, thank you very much, because that's not my sweet spot, yeah? Um, But for trademarks, it, it costs £180 to register your basic trademark in the UK. If you're wanting to register your product across various classes, what we call classes or types of goods or services, then there's extra costs to do that. But the basic cost is £180. And most people go, oh, I thought it'd be thousands. I thought it'd be, oh, okay, right. Um, oh, I've got no excuse anymore for putting that one off. You know? No, exactly. So everyone listening to this needs to go out and sort that trademark out right now. How long does it take, Rachel? It takes... To actually fill in the form yourself, so it takes about half an hour to an hour to do the research you need to do. Filling out the form, once you've done the research, 10 minutes maybe. Oh, amazing. I know. And then you just have to wait. So what happens, there are real humans behind this process. So your trademark application goes in and the trademark examiner, who's a a real human, looks at it and goes, do we think we can allow this? Is it unique enough this name for the product category. There's various rules it needs to follow. But they look at it and they either go, yeah, we think it's okay, in which case then it goes out for what's called examination where it gets published and then anyone in the outside world, it's almost like if you're getting married and the bane's being put on the church notice board, yeah. <laughs> basically it's the trademark equivalent. So so they, they put it up on in the outside world on their website to say, if anyone's got any objections, speak now, forever hold your peace. Otherwise, you know, in a few weeks' time, we're going to grant this one. So it's either that happens or what happens, they go, oh, we're not quite sure about this one. And they actually send you a letter. And it's actually got a name of a real human at the bottom of it. And you can actually call the trademark office and speak to this person and try and get some extra info out of them. Yeah? Brilliant. So it's it's not 
And, and if you do have any questions when you're applying, you can actually call them as well. Hmm. So that's worth knowing then. So everyone listening to this, they haven't got trademarked there. When does it get turned down? Is it because you might have something similar? I do know someone who had a brand name which was very similar to a well-known London department store. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact his his name was the, brand, the department store's first name and the, and the second word, completely unrelated, um, they they pulled him up on it and he and said he could no longer trade under that name. Yeah. So, you know, how do you know whether you've got a fighting chance? Is it if you Google the name of your business and you can't find anything else under that name, you're generally going to be all right? So, so the first thing I always do, I, I check the trademark if it's already registered in the UK. Um, if if it is, for example, your brand name's got two words in it. And one is more, so say you're John someone or other, for example, yeah, Um, you're John someone or other, the someone or other is probably the more unique bit. So so you're going to have a a look to see whether that combination of words or any of the individual sort of special or, you know, more unique words are being used by anyone else for your type of goods or services and if it's already registered. So that's one area you'll fall down. Uh, they, they don't like sort of rudeness and profanity and, you know, racist stuff. <laughs> call them funny, but they're, they're good at holding right. the line on that one. Yeah. They also don't like trademarks or, or you to try and register one where it's describing the product. So if, for example, you're a food label for, for an easy thing and you want to call yourself chocolate cake, you'd get a no because you're describing what you're actually selling. If you're ch- selling okay. chocolate cake and you're calling it chocolate cake, that's probably going to be a no, but if you're a PR and marketing agency who want to be one of those fun ones and call yourself, call yourself, call yourself, call yourself chocolate, it's not describing what you're selling. You're not selling chocolate cake, you're selling PR and marketing services, so they'll let that one through. Oh. Brilliant, that can, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and then the other area that often people get held up is where it's sort of a doc or a designation. So like Parmesan, for example, it's always easy to do these with food, some of the trademark stuff, Parmesan, or organic. Yeah, so... Yeah, where it needs a certain certification. Exactly. So there are some words yeah. where you go, I'd love that in my brand name, but actually let's just use it everywhere in the description. So from an SEO mm-hmm. and a search perspective and from sort of a brand perception, it shows up there. Um, so there, there mm. are ways around. So, so yeah, you, you, you research to see if your trademarks well. Just do general Google searches to see what's online. Uh, do checks too to see domain names because it is helpful if you can get the domain name in your brand. Name. Yeah. And does that, by that, do you mean a domain name with a kind of something credible like .com, .co.uk, rather than one of the kind of more obscure ones now? Because I know some people will just go for the one that is easily available because the .com, all the original ones have all gone, but that probably means someone else has built a business on that original name, exactly. doesn't it? Exactly. So that's why if they're gone, then go and search. And what you might find is sometimes people have registered them and just park them to the side and not use them yet. I, I have to admit I'm guilty of that sometimes, of registering domain names. Where I might do this. I like the name of this. I'll, I'll get that just in case. Um, there's that, But, yes, what you always want is what's called a top-level domain name. So that's a .com, .co.uk. It's basically the country ones plus the .coms, .nets, .co, .ios, the new one in, in that, that grouping. Um, so, so, so always go with, go with those. Also have a look on social media and see that 
what's happening there because there was someone I was chatting to about trademarks late last year and she's got a fantastic product. It's it's more of a service-based product and it was all clear for trademarks, but the hashtag was being used by a far right wing group in the US. <laughs> yeah, that she didn't right. really want to be associated with. No. 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 Yeah, it's a yeah. really good point actually. And the yeah. US was gonna exactly. most likely be a key market for her. There's an English speaking market, so it was likely to be a key market. So that was like, mm, no, let's let's change it. I also tend to search for international trademarks, and there's a sort of one website, the World Intellectual Property Organization, you can go to, and it covers 90 odd countries. Uh, it's an ugly website. Don't go to it thinking that it's you know gorgeous, but it does the job, and you can search globally there. So if you are thinking that you're in this business for longer term then it's really worth doing those those checks because you might not be looking at the EU today, but for your market sector, that might be where the growth is going to be. Your growth might not be in the UK. The growth might be in the EU or the US or, you know, somewhere else. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really, really good advice. Brilliant. Rachel, there's one more thing that I want to pick your brains on before you go because you're a wealth (laughs) of business knowledge and I know a lot of people listening to this are going to find this so useful. But you talked about the EU... VAT yes. changes that are coming in. Can you explain that in the simplest of terms? How is it going to affect people if they've got a product business in yeah. the UK? Okay. So basically, it's a good change. So basically, what a lot of people are finding is that with their EU customer base, longer term, they probably want to have their goods stored in the EU warehouse to ship to their EU customers. Particularly if you're bringing goods in that have components that have come in from outside the EU and UK, you might ship them there directly. But also, even if you're you're British made, for ease, it may well be easier for you as a company to ship into the EU at effectively your wholesale or your manufacture cost and then send on to your customers after that. Now, what's happening on the 1st of July is basically a rule that says if you VAT register in any single country in the EU, you can use that for all your EU sales. Oh, okay. So you can just register in one country and it works yes. in for all of them. Yes. Brilliant. Okay, that's Whereas really at clear. at the moment, post-Brexit, we have this scenario where each country's got a threshold over which you need to register for that. Now, whilst ours is more like £75,000 here, for most of the EU, it's about €30,000. So what... Oh, is it really yeah, that low in Yeah, the so year? once you go over that in an individual country you then need to register for VAT in that country. So if you're selling over €30,000 30, worth in a single EU country, you need to register for VAT in that EU country. So you can imagine if you're hitting over that in a few EU countries, then that potentially causes a bit of a um, paperwork funfair for you. Yeah. So from 1st of July, the rule is you only need to register in one EU country and it's called – it's. Fat Moss, it's like a one-stop shop, basically what they call it. Yeah, yes. they've done it for services previously. They're doing it for goods now. And so it means that there's a strategic decision for lots of businesses to make, and I call it sort of the location matrix. So you've got the location of where your supplies or raw materials come from. You've got the location where you manu- manufacture or produce your goods. And you've got the location of where your warehouse is and the location of where your customers is. And this creates a bit of a spider web where you then got costs in some areas and revenue or you're making money in other areas or other countries. 
And for the rat reg, there's nothing to say you need to do it in the country where you're making most of your money. And there's nothing to say you need to do in the country where you're incurring most of your costs. Yeah. So right. if you're a company that is really growing, now, you know, if you're early days, just register where you need to register. Where it's simple. It might be somewhere like a country where um, there's a good English-speaking population. Yeah, what we'll find is we'll mm. find services over the next couple of months coming out around Ireland and the Netherlands and places. Uh, yeah, well, that's how it could be yeah. Ireland. Okay, yeah. and Ireland's got 12.5% corporation tax. That's another thing to consider over there, though their VAT's higher than that. Um, but but if you're really scaling up, and I, I mean you're going to be doing, you know, 500K plus in the EU and you're growing, then it's worth sitting down and mapping out where your locations are to make a bit of a strategic decision around it because for some people they'll end up with, registering in, in Ireland for various purposes, yeah. but they might have a warehouse in Poland because that's cheaper and easier than Ireland for shipping around the EU. Yeah. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. So, so you're going to get sort of this web, but whilst at the moment it's a bit sort of jiggled about the place, like anything, we've got good six months warning on this one we've had. We know it's coming. People are, people are gearing up for it behind the scenes. So for smaller brands, the, the key message is, don't worry about it. It's something that will work to your advantage. And by the time you get there, the big players will have sorted it enough that it will be a simple process. Yeah. Brilliant. We love to hear about simple, simple processes. Process. So now our trade after listening to this, our trademarks are sorted. They're simple. VAT in trade into the EU. Sorted. Simple. Sorted. Sorted. Bring on <laughs> Q3, Q4, 2021, and let's make lots of money. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Rachel, aside from waiting for everyone to get out of lockdown and wear um, <laughs> wedding shoes and, and needing your insoles, I'm going to ask you, what does Made in UK mean to you? Made in UK, I know that there's a quality there. I know that there are people I can talk to. I know that, you know, that there's a, a rich manufacturer history in lots of areas that is just gorgeous, to be honest. When you speak, when I speak with, you know, I'll click a Bob who, who makes ballet shoes, you know, that cuts, cuts all the leather that gets used in ballet shoes for a ballet. How lovely is that? You know? I love it. Clicker Bob. Clicker Bob. <laughs> Brilliant. He's actually my phone is Bob the Clicker. His email address is Bob the Clicker. I won't tell you the rest of it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And finally, do you want to give a shout out to one other brand that makes in the UK that you love? Oh, that's a really good point. I almost don't want to single one out. Um, <laughs> I, I see that there's a lot. What, what I'm loving at the moment is to see people working with UK fabric again and getting UK pattern making, both in terms of cutting but also designing. I know a fabulous illustrator who her stuff is just amazing, just amazing. But she can only do it in the UK because it means she can do short runs and she does bespoke um, bridal gowns and bridesmaids dresses with the sort of patterns that are distinct to the couple on it. What's uh, her name? So Tessa, Tessa Semple. So it's a name. Tessa Semple. S-E-M-P-L-E. I'm sure she'll come up under that. Um, she used to be one of the heads of fabric at Liberty, uh, but she's just an amazing illustrator. And it'll be, it'll be great to see what she starts to do as we come out of lockdown. So where can everyone find you, Rachel? 
So the easiest way to find us is on our website, so alicebow.com, so A-L-I-C-E, the name, B-O-W.com, and on social media on Instagram, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rachel. You've been a real font of knowledge. Really enjoyed having you (laughs) on the podcast. My (laughs) pleasure. Lovely and sweet, Kate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday and Friday, plus there are bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website, which you can find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.